0: Uh, thank you. Thank you all for getting here at this time. I'm seeing so many uh, familiar faces around here that uh, I'm reminded of that Jah, his story says, uh, well, you know, yes, the audience, well, how many of you know, and I, I can see mostly knowers that I know are knowers out here, and how many, and they raise hand, how many don't know? And he says, well, those of you who know teach the other ones who don't know. So i can going kind to of get off the stage truly with this uh, distinguished uh, audience full of longtime students. And there's John back there, translators of a bit Arabi in fundamental ways. Um, I, I'm simply here to mention reminders, not something that's new. Um, just a couple of things by way of introduction. One is I, I really. This topic of the legacy of Ibn Arabi, um, I know I've been to three earlier conferences with that uh, title in Marrakesh and Cordoba, I think, and somewhere in Spain. And in really the 2001 up at Chisholm are all dedicated to this subject. And my papers are all in that approaching Ibn Arabi volume. But I wanted to do something new uh, this time and take up something new, which is after having worked so long here, uh, those who Listen to people like Bill and myself may think that we don't really do new stuff, but, but we just, we're just we still excited about, about Ibn Arabi. And what I came up with is when we look at this question of the legacy of Ibn Arabi, and it's what, what I always see is that it's really the needs that remain constant. And uh, uh, Bill alluded to a time about 16, 17 years ago when we were at a conference near here at the Jewish Theological Seminary, maybe just a block away on Nachmanides. And they'd invited experts, and I was teaching at Prince of the Time, they'd invited experts on mysticism from different traditions uh, to come. And in the middle of the conference, people had been saying this and that about Ibn Arabi, and Louis Dupree from Yale got up and he said, you know, if Ibn Arabi didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. (laughs) And and the, the irony of the remark was people had been alluding to him all the way through, and apart from Bill and myself, I don't think... People knew maybe Korban or maybe Azutsu, probably mostly Korban's Ibn Arabi. That was what they were going on, but the need to find uh, that a common language to talk about what is essentially human was such that everyone was turning to an Ibn Arabi that uh, they, they knew without having studied him, and really... Uh, that's why this uh, work, and, and, and I just, we never know when we'll get back. Even though I've been to many of these uh, East and West of conferences, uh, I really do want to thank so there's so many key members of the Ibn Arabi Society here who've been with it from practically the start. I still run into new people who were uh, back there in the 70s and 80s. And uh, really, it's hard to imagine uh, this, the many ways. Everyone sees, whether it be the works of safeguarding and editing text, the ways they support that, or getting scholars together, giving you incentive to write, these ways are each really invaluable. We take them for granted, perhaps, but uh, we shouldn't, because uh, without that work, uh, that often is unsung, because it's a kind of support task for spreading these ideas. Uh, We wouldn't be in this situation, we wouldn't be here, and uh, the the name Ibn Arabi would not be floating around out there in the way it was so dramatically at the conference some years back. Um, So um, this is not my paper yet. But uh, in fact, um, as often happens in Sufi stories, last night I was really inspired after the music and and Bill's talk and everything and the meeting so people, and I came back and filled up my paper with all sorts of annotations and added remarks and then I got up this morning and discovered my eyeglasses had disappeared. So, so if you see me kind of looking like this, um, this is a real, subject. sorry, it means, you know, this is not Elm. This is Elm. I need to talk from Marifa. So maybe. <laughs> anyway, um, all of this will come out in print in due time. But um, I think the legacy of Arabi, when one looks at it in all these domains from theology, philosophy, arts, humanities, and in the Mongol period and thereafter as Islam spread throughout Asia and the Ottoman world, and then uh, more recently today when we're kind of in a similar situation on a global scale. What really, the the universality of Ibn Arabi is not in his theory, but in his writings are not in the Islamic language, integral as both of those things are, but it's really in the process, the last thing Bill came to in his introduction last night is taqiq and the process of realization Which, interesting enough, and he really emphasized this at the beginning of the Futuhat and later on, is something that every human being, individually and collectively, is participating in. It's not like something for intellectuals or for Sufis or whatever. It's really the very inner foundation of Ibn Arabi's work. And, interestingly enough, in the first big section, there are six sections of of the Futuhat, the first 73 chapters... Um, The central section there is where he lays the foundation for our understanding the universality of this process of realization, which is the very essence of our our life and time here on Earth. So the first chapters are what you could call, use an analogy, are the sort of cosmic theater. Uh, Cosmology, the kinds of things actually Bill started with in his talk last night, uh, where he talks, uses a central metaphor of divine speech and divine writing. Uh, after that, then you kind of go backstage in the theater, and he takes up the aulia, the the central friends of God. They're really the the, the support staff that make the theater run. That are the, at the we see some of them at the tip of the iceberg. and we aspire to be like them and their spiritual stations and states. So then you get to the center of this opening section, and he's there. He finally suddenly switches from talking about something that's out there and around us stu- to talking about what's innermost and to each of us. And so as it always happens, he starts talking about you, the singular you, the, the you that's actually to which this work is addressed. And that's what this paper will be about, those chapters. Um, there are eight chapters here, like eight immense chapters that I had the hubristic idea of like fitting in a 40-minute lecture, uh, itty-bitsy-bitsy can. Couldn't do it, so I'm really going to mostly focus here on the first couple of those chapters about the self. And then after that, of course, he turns to eschatology, which is really the uh, sort of spotlight shining on where we're heading from this situation. And finally, the chapters in ibadat on the what we need to do to follow that path that he sketched out. So it's a, a wonderful sort of... Uh, Uh, moving from the outermost cosmic, macrocosmic image of our human situation to these chapters on the microcosm. So that's what this paper will be about, mostly translating Ibn Arabi. And my apologies, another thing here is I'm terribly frustrated by having used the language of he. It's a a grammatical in Arabic, uh, but anything you do in English to get around it almost emphasizes the... The gendering and, you know, there are two fundamental obstacles in English language or European languages, Indo-European languages, to talk about Ibn Arabi. I was listening to Bill last night, and everything he's talking about is process, not discrete entities. Uh, There are no entities in, in Ibn Arabi. It's this fundamental difference between him and the philosophers that Bill was mentioning. And so process... Um, we don't have—it's just so hard. You have to be a musician or a poet to do that in English, and I'm not doing that in these translations. So my apologies for those dimensions of the translation which I'll be given here today. So at the, the bad, at the very center of Ibn Arabi's long opening section of his Meccan Illuminations on the basic forms of spiritual awareness and understanding, the Arif. Chapters 51 to 58 offer his initial practical introduction in this work to the essential dimensions of his spiritual psychology or his um, spiritual epistemology. That is, to the complex, never-ending interplay between each human being's inner awareness, the lifelong processes of testing and temptation, and the gradually unfolding discovery of right, and also wrong or unconscious, action, which slowly reveals to us, day by day, our unique and timeless individual essence, Ein. In a way, these foundational chapters literally set the stage for those subtle inner dramas of inspiration, discovery, and spiritual realization that constitute his ultimate subject throughout the remaining five sections of, really, basically the three quarters of this monumental work. So the preceding chapters in this opening fossil, after a long and exceedingly complex set of symbolic introductions, are also grouped into a large uh, I'm sorry this is where my eyesight comes out, into a large opening section on the many stages and dimensions of cosmogony and creation as expressed in elaborate discussion of the divine letters and the chronic image of god's creative speech the cosmic breath of the all merciful al-rahman this cosmological framework is followed by a fascinating set of shorter chapters introducing the many archetypal friends of God, the Aliya Allah, who were at once our models and goals of spiritual aspiration and our even more essential guides and intermediaries in the spiritual path. Then the reader suddenly encounters these eight key chapters that dramatically switch perspective to the basic forms of our own and all human beings' experience of the spiritual life and its challenges and discoveries. Chapter 51 begins very concretely with the people of inspired cautiousness and discretion. That's the first of these essential chapters, the people of Wara. Those, Ibn Arbi says, who are, and this is quoting, who are the ascetics and abstainers, the Zuhad, who have realized the way station of the divinely inspired breath of the all-merciful. These ascetics, and by the way, the, this is really written in a kind of dialogue with the early Sufi writers. There are all sorts of allusions to Junaid, to Kutu uh, Kalub, to Qashairi, to uh, many people that you will recognize when you read it as uh, Ghazali, as Ibn Arabi's forerunners. So these ascetics, ascetic here just refers to these uh, early Sufis, abstain at first, from unlawful foods and livelihoods, which they are able to recognize as such, almost miraculously, to outside observers, because uh, God gives them hidden indications through which they recognize what is licit and the illicit. Then the same, okay, uh, and again, these are trying to string together quotes here, the same unease and anxiety which they experience in their own souls leads them on to avoid many other spiritually distracting things, like the speech of other human beings, their very company, and so on, until eventually they completely withdraw from all human society. while God gives them, in the place of that conflict-ridden human company, all sorts of inspired consolations, including the music of the winds and streams, divine litanies of remembrance and prayer, and converse with the animals and other creatures, until all their speech, like that of all the other creatures in the natural world, is only praise and glorification of God. but they still still must wrestle in their wilderness uh, solitude, as Ibn Arabi reminds us here, with the paralyzing inner temptations of the jinn and their own thinking. And that heightened inner wrestling ultimately brings even these pure ascetics back to the inner spiritual processes of observation, learning, and discernment that are the much more detailed subject of the following chapters. And very often, you can imagine what Ibn is talking about. Just imagine the long painting tradition of St. Jerome or St. Anthony, all of these early uh, desert fathers who, who were the original monachoi, the major, original solitaries before monasteries were formed uh, out in the desert. So there's something almost uh, familiar and at the same time exaggerated about this chapter 51. So taken by itself, this chapter, with its enticing and perhaps intentionally ironic, almost cartoon-like portrayal of the simple spiritually focused life of pure solitary and inspired uh, earlier ascetics, reminiscent of similar isolated, self-exiled monastic, uh, monastic here in this root sense, of the monite, the, the, the solitaries, figures, found in virtually every religious tradition, uh, could even be taken to suggest a naive dualism in which the ultimate aim of our earthly life is simply to separate and protect the divine spirit, what Ebenard more often calls in these chapters the breath of the all-merciful, within each of us, from all of the temptations, tensions, conflicts, and apparent distractions of our social, material, intellectual, and material existence, and natural existence. Instead, though, Ibn Arabi immediately turns his attention in chapter 52, which I've translated and will be the bulk of this talk, which constitutes a basic spiritual epistemology course in Ibn Arabi's own words. Then we can turn to its more fascinating uh, practical applications in the following chapters, uh, chapter 53, the following chapter, in this afternoon's workshop, and the other following chapters of this section, which I'll take up and translate for the uh, uh, the Jornalhidaqa uh, uh, on November 14th. You can come back and get the sequel of this, and uh, at the University of Exeter, at another conference where Bill and I will should be, inshallah, in uh, next April. So the central subject of chapter 52 is the inescapable, providentially cunning um, interpenetration, the makarala in the chronic terms, or inaya, uh, of all of our human experience between the divine, literally spiritual elements of grace, illumination, and inspiration, again the breath of the all-merciful on the one hand, on the other hand, all the natural drives, fears, and desires of our Unique bodily nature and individual earthly soul in nafs. Uh, and by way of privilege of this translation, we'll get to in just a minute, here Ibn Arabi, uh, because he starts with the spirit the, uh, and the literal spiritual dimension of our lives, separates off the word nafs or soul for speaking of all the other dimensions of the soul, even though, in fact, and throughout the rest of the Putohad, he generally uses nafs to refer to all of these uh, different dimensions of our self, self and soul, um, and also, the other thing is, those of you, many people here, are involved in different Sufi traditions, and you're familiar with this kind of common shorthand of nafs for nafs al-amara, which is the more uh, earthly side of the human soul. Uh, so uh, this could be confusing. Uh, so again, he's always talking about the soul, but these different inner dimensions of our soul and self. So uh, it's the between these two poles, as it were, these two elements. The quintessential human task of discerning and learning from the changing constellation of these inner impulses of the individual soul is then developed from a different perspective in each of the six following chapters. Chapter 53, for example, briefly mentions the practical outer and inner foundations of spiritual purification and harmony. Chapter 54, that's what we'll come to this afternoon in the workshop, Chapter 54 takes up the illustration of the different levels of understanding of spiritual illusions, or isharat, among the true spiritual knowers, the orafa, in contrast to the various groups of scholars of external forms, the Ulamar rasum, or the fukaha. Chapter 55 takes up the constant challenge of discerning between our random thoughts and inspirations that come at times from Satan and those similarly uncontrolled intuitions transmitted from God, the angels, and the natural soul itself. Then chapters 56 to 58 analyzed very deeply the complex roles, both positive and negative, of rational thinking, inference, and intuition in our ongoing inner processes of spiritual inspiration and realization. Here, we might add, as can be explored more fully in another of this afternoon's workshops, that the gazals of Hafez of Shiraz are almost all carefully constructed practical tools for exploring precisely this kind of complex process of inner discernment serving as unique divining mirrors of the soul's deepest states and inclinations, whose transforming efficacy has been proven by multitudes of readers over many centuries. I'm glad that Axel was able to come down and uh, uh, speak of this dimension of Hafez, which, as I said, is just, uh, even in translation, it's like Ibn Arabi not so much in a nutshell, but, but transmuted into the actual processes of realization that he analyzes in these central chapters in the Futuhat. Finally, while chapter 52 focuses outwardly on the constant role of anxiety and fear in our natural inner motivation and striving, it is noteworthy that Ibn Arabi's own final summary of the inner secret meeting, the sirr, of this chapter at the end of the Futuhat in chapter 59 uh, uh, the the, the ultimate chapter of the book, uh, entirely and very pointedly describes the subject of this chapter instead in terms of the universal dynamic, of fundamental love, and overwhelming desire. Hawa, we'll come to that at the end of the talk. The Ishq of the later Persian mystical poets, the Eros of the Greeks. Chapter 52, so now I'm I'm going to be primarily translating, uh, because I wanted to give these things to you in Ibn Arabi's own not just his words, but his approach. But all now and then I'll just jump out and say a few things about what we've been talking about. So the opening poem in this chapter is remarkably short. Uh, everything in the Fotoat, mostly in the Fusus as well, begins with poetry, ends with poetry. So here's the, the first lines. Every person who fears for his bodily form or his bodily temple, the Haikal, will not see God, will not see Hak, openly and visibly. So fear is the ultimate obstacle, just as love when we come to the end is the ultimate uh, uh, opener, the ultimate uh, vision, uh, instrument of vision. For you, and the you here is singular, for you see him only when you witness him, returning to existence to come, desiring the body. So let me, this is the mystery, this is the central topic of this chapter, you do see him when you witness him returning to existence, desiring the body. And here he's alluding to most of you or if you've read something, have probably read that uh, the sort of meditation on the, uh, the Hadith of Gabriel, the, uh, the famous isan of doing, seeing what is good and what is beautiful as, if you are not, then you do see him. So that's what this verse is about. And when you see the courageous one advancing boldly, seeking intensely what the cowards beware of. This last line will be explained very quickly in the chapter. You must know, may God support you with the spirit from him, that God has intrinsically formed human souls in fearful anxiety at the very source of their earthly constitution. Therefore, bravery and courage are something accidental in them. Uh, fearful anxiety and unease are stronger in human beings than in any of the animals except for cockroaches. <laughs> he mentions the cockroaches a couple of other times, too. This is proverbial in Arabic. Uh, the cause of this great power... yeah, People in New York are familiar with this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, I remember my apartment. Everybody's apartment in New York has this problem. The cause of this great power of anxiety in human beings is precisely that thinking and intelligence, fiqhra and akhra, through which God distinguished the human being from all the other animals. And, and there's a lot of uh, diaresis points here where we jump ahead. Indeed, the subtle inner reality of the human being, a latifa l'insaniya, is between the divine spirit, the ruh, which is the breath of all, all merciful, and that well-shaped body, the, the musawa, that's repeatedly described about God's forming of Adam, Composed of the fine balance of the four elements, which exist within the harmonious order of nature, that God is placed under the domination of the universal soul, just as he has he's placed these earthly elements under the domination and rule of the heavenly spheres. So the animal body of each human being, that is, is under the domination and control of these elements, these earthly material elements. Uh, hence, our body is something dominated by another thing, nature which is dominated by the heavenly spheres, that are dominated by the universal soul, which is under the domination of the universal intelligence. So in a way, our body is at the fifth and lowest degree of external domination, and it is the weakest of all weak things, or he's certainly alluding here to in the Quran. So weakness is its very foundation. And here he goes on to cite a number of chronic verses, highlighting this intentionally helpless and dependent nature of the earthly human reality. Now this fundamental earthly weakness of the human being, each human being, was only so that his essence might always be accompanied by lowliness, needfulness, the search for its survival, and the need for its creator. Yet despite all this, the human being still forgets his origin, and becomes arrogantly proud of whatever power he may momentarily happen to have acquired. Then he becomes so filled with pretension that he says, I, like Faram, and pictures himself boldly confronting immense terrors. Yet when a flea bites him, that essential anxiety is awakened by the existence of the pain, so that he hastens to remove that hurt, and he remains all upset, until he finds that flea and kills it. So what is it about a mere flea (laughs) i am remarked I think my wife for a long time ago this story uh, that I would have classes in the spring out in the big park in front of Overland College and one time there was a bee buzzing around by a uh, uh, bugging our, our, our class, and I whacked the bee. And all the students were just immensely shocked that yeah, Professor Morris, <laughs> who they ima- of, of whom they imagined all sorts of untrue things, was actually. <laughs> so here it is. You know, when there's a flea in your bed, you can't be satisfied, you kill it. So what is it about a mere flea that causes him such intense concern, driving him suddenly from his bed, like an earthquake, so that he can't sleep? The, the verb is yuzalziloha, you know, he's, it literally earthquakes him out of his bed, this this flea. And what happened to that pretentious ego ready to confront immense terrors, so suddenly undone by the single bite of a flea or a mosquito? So this is the human being's origin. And that is so that he might come to know that his confronting immense terror is only occurs through someone or something other than himself, not by himself. That courageous ability is something that God has supported him with, which is why he prescribed in our praying, the Fatiha, the verse 5 of the first uh, surah, it is from you that we seek support, the Yaqa Now, since the human being knows that he would not have any individual reality, any ayin, in being, were it not for the being of God, and that his source is, he he was not something remembered, uh, this is a chronic quotation, as God said, I have already created you before, and you were not anything. These are all old passages from the Quran. Therefore, being has a pleasure and sweetness. Wujud, finding this God, has a pleasure and sweetness. And for us, it is the good. For simply imagining the non-existence, the opposite of being, of our individual reality, is an intense torment, an immense pain for souls, human souls. A suffering whose full extent is only realized by the true knowers of, with, and through God, the ulama bellof. Yet every soul is anxious about being overcome by non-existence as though that were its actual state, even though non-existence has no being. It's, it's imaginable, but it isn't real. Now the spirits only become manifest through the creative divine breaths, although the places where the spirits pass undoubtedly have an influence on them. Uh, don't you see that the wind and your wind re has the same root as spirit rule? That the wind, when it passes by something putrid, carries an offensive odor to our smelling. While when the wind passes by something perfumed, then it brings a good fragrance. Likewise, the spirits of uh, people are all different. So there is a good spirit for a good body. Uh, and here he's alluding to a famous verse, you know, the Quran, al-Musannun So the, he's speaking of the relation between the spirit and the body as a kind of marriage. And the Quran says the, the good, Good ones are for the good ones, and the not-so-good ones are for the not-so-good ones. So such a good spirit never devotes itself to anything other than God, and it never becomes a, um, a, a locus or a place bearing inferior character qualities. And So these are like the spirits of the prophets, the friends of God, the Awliya, and the angels. But a bad spirit is for a bad body, so that it continually devotes itself to things other than God, and being and to being bearing the lower inferior character traits. That difference is material bodily preparedness and inf- in our material bodily preparedness and influences only because of the predominance of certain natural factors, such as the distinctive mix of the bodily humours at the origin of the constitution of that body, which are the proximate cause, the sub of the occasion, for that body's receiving the good spirit or for accepting the noblest character traits, or for another body accepting inferior character traits, for a bad spirit. But but the thing I should emphasize here is, this is a a mystery that one needs to read the rest of the Futatars. and what is it? It's not a question just of different bodily uh, conditions for the soul, but also of uh, different um, spirits that have been marked, experienced, made in different ways, and he doesn't explain that as well, right in this chapter, but it's something that we all have to wrestle with. Thus the health and wholesome integrity of the spirits reside in the nobility of its character traits that it acquired through the constitution of its material body. So that the good spirit comes with every good and pleasing quality, and as for the sick spirit, um, yes, it is sick, the sick spirits, their reprehensible character traits that they have acquired are also influenced by the constitution of their elemental bodies. You could substitute here DNA for all of these things. So that they come with very ugly and repulsive character traits. And then he goes on to compare this, adapting uh, Janaid's famous formula with the light of the sun, the way it, the sun being being, that it casts different colors when it passes through glass that is red or green, uh, that uh, the, the color of the water, in Junaid's word, is the color of the, of the glass, of the, of the nature. Now, since the wind is one of the most powerful things, and since the spirit is a breath, which is like the wind, which is like the wind, the power belongs to the spirit. So the source of the emergence of the spirits is from that power, with capital P, perhaps, Qudra, from Al-Qadir. But a spirit can acquire witness from the natural bodily mixture, for the individual reality of that spirit only becomes manifest after it undergoes the influence of that natural mixture of the humors, the temperament. In that case, it may emerge as weak because it's closer to that body in the manifestation of its individual reality. But if a spirit should receive the divine power, it only receives that power from its source, which is the breath of the all-merciful, which is referred to in the Quran as the spirit breathed into Adam from God. And that pure spirit receives that power of the divine breath just as it may receive weakness from the impure body. Both of these cases are in accordance with the source, either bodily or divine, but they are closer to the particular body because the spirit has established a compact with its body, it's married its body, and its bodily weakness predominates over its power. But if the spirit were to be separated, to jarada, which is usually a positive term for the philosophers and certain mystics, this, if the spirit were to be separated from matter entirely, then its original power that it had from the divine inblowing would appear fully. But here's where the, the trick here, or the thing we're not expecting. And there is nothing more powerfully arrogant and prideful and obscene than that separate pure spirit. Hence, God has conjoined the inbreathed spirit with its natural form permanently, both in this world and in the intermediate world, the barzakh, in the sleep after death. Or the Quran refers that we go there as well in our sleep. Thus the spirit never sees itself alone, purified from all matter. Even the other, the next world, the spirits are continually with their imaginal bodies, their jasad, as opposed to earthly just in Arabic. God raises up the spirits from the horn of the intermediate world in those bodies which he constituted for them on the day of the rising. And the spirits enter the garden and the fire in those imaginal bodies. That is, so that they may still be conjoined with that weakness that, uh, I don't know, I say primordial... French has this fonciere, this essential weakness of their bodily nature. Continually poor, needful, fakir forever. So for Ibn Arabi, the human essence is to be fakir forever, to be in the state of Ubudiya. Uh, and he then warns about Pharaoh and some of the Sufis with their shatahat who experience this separated spirit and all of its delusions. Then they weren't aware of the humanity. So the human being is trash, he actually uses this word, uh, filled with weakness and need despite witnessing its source in the divine spirit of breath. I looked that up in like three dictionaries, the word he had there, used there because it was unfamiliar and it was really, it's intentional. Um, through its knowing, it states and its direct unveiling and through its knowing of its source and the spiritual station of its status as God's steward, its falafel. For from another perspective, it happens to experience that contemplation of its source as its own state, then it can lay claim to divinity, since that which results from God's inbreathing, from the source of that breath, has an influence of that to some extent. As he lays claim, in some ways, to that divinity, to that uluha, he isn't. He, when he does so, he says, Ibn Arabi says here, he isn't doing something impossible, because to the extent of the divine power that is in us, which the divine inbreeding has made manifest, the human being has been given the special favor." of moral responsibility, taklif. Since the divine, that is, there's a freedom here, because you can't have responsibility without freedom. This is Ibn Arabi's foundation of human rights, which people somehow haven't figured out and started publicizing yet. So since we have that human moral responsibility, since that divine breath in the human being is precisely what has that responsibility, and our actions are attributable to that spirit. Therefore, he is your source. And to him you return. Now I'm going to have you can see I'm going to have to run ahead a little bit here from this translation. Um, we got a little late start though, so what have we got ten more minutes? Okay. So since the essential reality of the human being is like that, God frightened him in these revelations through that what he mentioned about the quality of those who are arrogantly prideful and their ultimate infernal destiny and the blackening of their faces in the fires. All of that prophetic warning is a preventive medicine for the embodied spirits so that they might stop in regard to manifesting the divine source, in essence, I, with the weakness of their immediate bodily constitution. So the human being really is the son of his mother, that is, his earthly bodily dimension of the soul, without a doubt, since the spirit, that is, the son of God or the son of the father, is also paradoxically the son of the human being's divine nature. Uh, She, this bodily nature, has weaned us. We've grown up in her womb and fed in her blood. Nor does the human being ever cease to depend on food for the survival of this bodily frame that is our skeleton or the temple of the spirit, the hekta. Thus the enduring, the bakal, which God wants for the human being and is most appropriate for him, is through the being of this elemental bodily frame in this lower realm of life, dunya. And through the natural, and natural here doesn't have to refer to, it isn't like nature at all. It's simply nat- nature for Ibn Arabi is the embodied, the formed dimension of all creation and all of its levels. And through the natural, that is the imaginal bodily frame in the other life. But that enduring, which is established there in the next life for the human being who is arriving there, is only confirmed if he enters there as a servant. For the enduring that is established is only for the person who enters with the same taint of lordship of rububia in his soul. Uh, I'm sorry, the person who enters with some lordship in his soul, so that because of this, his gain is minimal. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, the, the enduring in the next world is not established for the person who has any kind of lordship in his soul. So his gain is minimal, no matter what he's experienced and done in this life. But the one whose servanthood is confirmed there in those gardens is a receptive servant, burning with aspiration to return to his source so that God might bestow on him of his knowing and awarenesses what he has already prepared for him. And if he should leave for a yet higher state, or perhaps to return to this world, to another earthly role, as happens with the Auliyah, the prophets, and so on, he leaves us a light gloriously illuminated by him. For So those who return the Raja who come back in a very different state. Um, and again, uh, I, I don't want to exaggerate it, but my interest in the arts that Nick alluded to and, and other Islamic humanities here. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was just, this is just the kind of chance things that happened there. But at the end, we I was talking about book three of the Mustavi and about very similar ideas about the uh, essential nature of our Ubudiya and how suffering is the very essence of our school here. And um, But there's this wonderful quatrain of Rumi's that Jahram Nazari sings, uh, a wonderful set of quatrains he does. Uh, I can't remember all of it in Persian, but it's, it sort of says that, that um, heartbreak is what the friend, the divine friend, the Wali, God as al-Wali, the, the ultimate friend, the ultimate intercessor, is uh, in all of his forms of friendship. What he wants of us is a broken heart, and it's, it's just... The the person is just like the word in English. And the third line of the quatrain, the third half line, is, uh, so I and my heart are always standing at the door of the friend. And then in Persian, to Tru, doost. shakaste midara dust. This wonderful line that the friend, because the friend loves broken the broken heart, and also because the friend has a broken heart. And that, of course, refers to the hidden treasure. I, I was a hidden treasure and I love to be known. That it's through this brokenheartedness that we discover God and through that that God becomes known. So, to return to the Futuat, therefore, whoever is granted success by God and holds fast to his servanthood, as in all of his states, even though he's aware of his divine fatherly spiritual source, gives due preference to his more proximate source on the side of his mother. As the earthly dimensions of his soul, since he is undoubtedly from his mother. So you must understand, <laughs> so you must understand the inner knowing, the marifa, of what we have bestowed upon you in this chapter. Now, uh, this is the last page. That true understanding and inner knowing, however, depends on our recognizing, discerning, and realizing for ourselves the ever present role. Of another even more fundamental manifestation of the divine breath within every one of each and every one of us, as Ibn Arabi explains so forcefully in his rhyming uh, summary of the innermost secret meaning of this chapter, by the way, and almost all the other chapters of the Futuwwa, in Chapter 559, the very end of the book, that secret core of this transformational process is the transforming dynamic role of Hawa, Eros, as fundamental desire, essential desire, how what can and quite visibly does, lead us um, to be, to discover both the highest and the lowest animal dimensions of our complex human reality. And the remaining chapters of this opening section each highlight key aspects of that unavoidable human responsibility of discernment and choice, reason choice, along with the painful conditions of its dramatic unfolding. Yet as love There is no escaping that gradually unfolding destiny of our singular individual reality, our I, we discover our our ultimate reality. Since the two dimensions of this psychological, and ultimately for Ibn Haravi, ontological and cosmological reality of Hawa, as both ultimate love and dangerously powerful existential desire, can sometimes seem so radically different or even opposed in English. You lump these two words together very often in English. And though that tinge of blasphemous tension is not absent from Ibn Arabi's own provocative use of this Arabic term either, uh, and this is all developed in many passages in the paper I gave four years ago at the Open Center on on Ibn Arabi's sort of manual of love uh, when we were talking about Ibn Arabi and Rumi, we will keep the paradoxical Arabic in this partial translation of this uh, final summary. Uh, I'm not going to do it, though. and I, In the Arabic, I did it for a written paper. But I want to read it through twice. And these summaries are very interesting. Uh, Bill, is Bill here now? He's not with us. But I think if you want to sort of see some of these, he used a lot of these in his second long book, in Ibn Arabi's uh, Cosmology, these summaries. But in the Arabic, they're raps. They're like um, rapping rhymed rhyme prose, usually three, four, five syllables. Uh, syncopated, you could actually give them without even knowing what was saying. Uh, so the English here is on the meaning, not the the essential uh, quality, a peculiar, very peculiar quality of this long, sequential summary of every chapter, of the inner meaning of every chapter in the Fotoat. But don't study anything in Ibn Arabi until you've gone to there and seen what he says there. So I'm going to read it twice, first with desire for Hawa, and then with love. And by the way, Hawa is, um, what is it, uh, our filmmaker friend was, is doing this project, and I think it's 65 names of love in Arabic. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Okay? And Ibn Harbi is a poet, perhaps thought of himself that way much more than we do today. And he loves to play with these different meanings, these words, not just in the chapter of love, but throughout his all of his work. So hawa is what happens when something swoops down, a bird of prey swooping down on its prey. That's Hawa. That's the kind of love, the intense emotion and the intense transformational power of love that he's talking about here. So there is no stopping, no protection from, from desire. So we are overthrown by desire and we try to see clear of desire. It is the right, the hawk of desire, that desire is the cause of desire. Were it not for desire in the heart, desire would not be worshipped or served. Or And it is desire that brings you to rest in the place of deepest integrity and truthfulness. I said, desire is pleasingly sweet and there is no pleasure in worshiping. And there is pleasure in worshiping hawa. And hawa, desire, is a refuge wherever it takes refuge in it. So it's the same thing, just translated different in English, but same words. There is no stopping, no protection from love. So we are overthrown by love. And we try to stay clear of it. It is the right of love that love is the cause of love. Were it not for love in heart, love would not be worshipped. And it is love that brings you to rest in the place of deepest integrity and truthfulness. Love is pleasingly sweet, and there is pleasure in worshiping and serving it. And love is a refuge. It it. Thank you. Thank you.